This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on new onset atrial fibrillation. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained heart rhythm disorder in adults worldwide. The prevalence is between 2 and 4%. If untreated, atrial fibrillation is a significant risk factor for stroke, myocardial infarction, and heart failure. So it is important we get diagnosis and management right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Barrett Kentaria, President of Cardiovascular and Heart Rhythm Consultants, Clinical Professor of Medicine, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. And importantly, Barrett is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Barrett, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is new onset atrial fibrillation? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, with the background that you alluded to about atrial fibrillation being the most common arrhythmia and the global epidemic uh, of the atrial fibrillation with its increasing incidence. What is exactly new onset atrial fibrillation? That's the question. New onset atrial fibrillation is defined as the term suggests a new onset or a first detectable episode of atrial fibrillation, whether symptomatic or not. The patient may in fact be consulting for totally another reason, or the AF is recorded fortuitously during a 12-lead ECG or because physical examination detects irregular heartbeats. Atrial fibrillation, new onset atrial fibrillation can be any of the subclassification of AFIE, paroxysmal, persistent, long-standing, or permanent atrial fibrillation. At this juncture, I do want to point out that a significant number of AF is reported in patients with non-cardiovascular diseases or conditions such as sepsis, pneumonia, respiratory failure, or maybe they're on dialysis. And these associated conditions may represent both a risk factor for AF development and or associated comorbidities leading to more severe outcomes. But for all practical purposes, a new onset atrial fibrillation is paroxysmal, persistent, long-standing, or permanent atrial fibrillation that is detected for the first time. And we should avoid the terms such as acute atrial fibrillation or chronic atrial fibrillation in that respect. Okay, thank you. That's very clear. How do you make the diagnosis of new onset atrial fibrillation? Well, most patients with new onset atrial fibrillation present with rapid palpitations, fluttering in the chest, dizziness, shortness of breath. Some patients may even present with neurological symptoms from stroke or embolic events. Let me also mention that in some patients who have cardiac implantable electronic devices such as pacemakers and defibrillators, new onset atrial fibrillation may be diagnosed when the device electrograms show atrial high rate events. In 
any event, as always the case with other conditions also, a good history and physical examination is absolutely necessary. Now, most patients presenting with symptoms related to arrhythmia, primarily due to the result as a result of uh, rapid ventricular rate. So the pulse would be irregular, uh, both in rhythm and volume. Um, there may be signs of underlying causes of atrial fibrillation, such as the elevated neck veins, bibasilar crackles uh, in heart failure state, or tremors, sweating, goiter in thyroid scosis state, and they should be looked for. An ECG should be the first test requested. Absent P waves that can be replaced by, that have been replaced by irregular fibrillatory waves and irregularly irregular QRS complexes will confirm the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. If one refers to the society's uh, guidelines, the European Society of Guidelines, uh, clearly a standard 12-bit ECG recording or a single lead ECG tracing of more than 30 seconds showing heart rhythm with no discernible P waves and irregular RR interval when the AV conduction is not impaired is diagnostic of atrial fibrillation. And at that or subsequent juncture, concomitantly, uh, also investigations for causal factors should be performed. And the assessment of nuanced AFib, its duration, precipitating factors should be established. Thank you. And besides those baseline investigations, what other investigations might you need to do? Well, a lot depends on um, uh, what you suspect the atrial fibrillation is from. So routine biochemistry, the thyroid function tests, uh, and then the effect of uh, atrial fibrillation on the cardiac function, which can be easily uh, assessed with uh, transthoracic echocardiography. And then depending on what we could do, uh, once diagnosis is made, patient may require even transesophageal echocardiogram, which uh, you know, we can discuss further during management uh, uh, aspect of atrial fibrillation. Have there been any recent advances in diagnosis? Oh, good question, actually. In the past few years, significant advances related to detection of atrial fibrillation and impact on risk stratification and management by modern technologies, machine learning, artificial intelligence has occurred. Um, with the built-in photo flash in smartphones, we all have smartphones now, uh, the photoplethysmography by optical measurement is capable of providing heart rate and rhythm information. So variables such as smartwatches have incorporated this technology and several studies have investigated their utility in EF detection and non-invasive long-term monitoring of atrial fibrillation. So for example, I'll cite a couple of uh, uh, studies in watch AF trial, which utilized such smart watches along with internet-enabled mobile ECG in a very large cohort of individuals. Analysis of data sets showed very high level of sensitivity around 94%, specificity of around 98%, and accuracy around 96% or so uh, in detecting atrial fibrillation. 
Another very landmark study, I would say, the Apple Heart Study, in which there were over 400,000 participants. Um, and in individuals who received an alert uh, of possibly being in atrial fibrillation from smartwatch-based uh, irregular pulse notification algorithm, a telemedicine was, uh, visit was initiated. And the participant would then wear an ECG patch for up to seven days. So interestingly, among those individuals, atrial fibrillation was present in overall 34 to 35% of the time. Additionally, those in participants who were notified of an irregular pulse, the uh, concomitant ECG um, detected atrial fibrillation with a positive predictive value of around 84%. So to, to summarize, the watch AF trial and Apple Heart study suggest feasibility of modern technology, smartwatch technology in detecting atrial fibrillation with very high diagnostic accuracy. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That's very interesting. Um, can you tell me what are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, uh, first of all, uh, spontaneous uh, uh, termination of the rhythm may occur in large percentage of patients with uh, recent or new onset of atrial fibrillation, I would say within 24 to 48 hours. Hence, documentation of atrial fibrillation by ECG is mandatory to make the diagnosis. And also there's a value of long-term monitoring uh, for the prognosis of atrial fibrillation. And as a clinician, uh, we face uh, an important decision um, uh, regarding the management, the best uh, treatment strategy, namely control of heart rate, restoration of sinus rhythm, maintaining of sinus rhythm, stroke prevention. So there are implications when you make diagnosis. With that background, it is not difficult to imagine that by making a wrong diagnosis or ECG misinterpretation, not only patients would become anxious, but they may be subjected to potential harm of unnecessary investigations, especially invasive procedures such as cardiac catheterizations and even uh, ablations and uh, risk of uh, bleeding and, and, and medications uh, with anticoagulations. The other pitfall is, uh, uh, is when we detect atrial fibrillation on the pacemaker defibrillator for the very first time. Um, and, and the question then is, how much AF burden is clinically relevant? For example, very short episodes, less than 10 or 20 seconds per day, are not significantly associated with longer episodes or an increased risk of stroke or systemic embolism. However, longer episodes of atrial heart rates or subclinical atrial fibrillation, which we would hear more and more, uh, that is minimum of five to six minutes of AF, would be associated with increased risk of clinical AF, stroke, major cardiovascular events, and even cardiovascular death. And, and, and these are the reasons why uh, one has to be very cautious about initiating uh, um, uh, anticoagulations or uh, whatever management uh, strategy in individuals, uh, you know, with your clinical judgment as to how much atrial fibrillation is uh, relevant. 
And that's, I believe, is the major pitfall of making the diagnosis. Thank you. Moving on to management, can you tell us what is the mainstay of management? The three elements in the management of uh, atrial fibrillation, uh, whether nuanced atrial fibrillations are number one, ventricular rate control, number two, restoration and maintenance of sinus rhythm, and number three, prevention of uh, thrombomolic events, particularly stroke. We want to preserve the brain function. Depending on the nature of the presentations and the urgency, you, you then carry on these three steps. As I alluded before, most nuanced AF would terminate uh, spontaneously within 24 hours, but some do require rate control management with medications. Um, and, and, and those who do not revert back may even require a cardioversion, uh, whether chemical or, or DC cardioversion. And I think, you know, those are the times you also want to know whether there is left atrial appendage clot and may require, patient may require transesophageal echography. So I think these are the three main stems uh, in terms of a treatment strategy for atrial fibrillation. Uh, whether you choose uh, warfarin or the newer anticoagulants, that is, is another discussion. Okay, thank you. Well, why don't we take that one, um, whether you should use warfarin or other anticoagulants? How might you uh, make that decision? So, again, it's a good question. I think, you know, um, warfarin takes several days to have a therapeutic effect. Uh, and um, uh, so patients who are presenting with new onset atrial fibrillation uh, needs to be treated with heparin initially while they are waiting cardioversion or when they are being evaluated for long-term anticoagulation. Now, the several NOAC, the, the novel or new oral anticoagulants, they are no longer new and no longer novel, so the correct terminology is direct oral anticoagulants. Dabigatrin, rivaroxaban, epixaban, edoxaban. They have been approved for stroke prevention uh, in patients with non-valvular AF, and they have even added advantages of uh, some other disease modification. And they are the new recommendations in almost all uh, patients who are eligible for warfarin. One of the limitations we have for warfarin is uh, the time in therapeutic range. And, and it's very difficult to have uh, a good uh, time in therapeutic range uh, of more than 50 or 60% of the time. Uh, and then the drug-drug interactions and diet modifications and uh, needing to go for the blood work, uh, INR checks on a regular basis. On the other hand, the DOACs have a very rapid uh, uh, pharmacokinetics and uh, switching off and switching on kind of uh, uh, actions. Okay. Thank you. Uh, that, that's helpful. Tell us a little bit more about DC cardioversion, if you can. So uh, the direct uh, cardioversion, uh, in, in terms of um, uh, the procedure specifications, you know, you apply uh, direct current, uh, uniphasic, but chiefly biphasic, uh, uh, synchronized to the uh, QRS R waves, um, so that... Um, the heart momentarily is totally uh, uh, defibrillated. And then when 
wakes up, so to speak, in a, a designer's rhythm, uh, would get restored. Uh, so it's, it's done, uh, of course, under very short anesthesia. Um, um, and um, it's done, uh, performed uh, in a setting where one can uh, monitor the patients. Um, it's very, uh, um, the risk of procedure is very minimal, actually. And um, after, say, a successful uh, DC cardioversion, should the, start, should the patient start on medications to maintain sinus rhythm, I wonder? Most people uh, who have uh, uh, developed atrial fibrillation, and if you, uh, uh, from the concept point of view, understand there is a substrate uh, and, and uh, uh, they recur, uh, atrial fibrillation recurs, uh, would require some form of medication, uh, uh, antidemic drugs, depending on the substrate, uh, whether you have coronary disease, heart failure, uh, some other comorbidities uh, to maintain normal rhythm. Um, generally speaking, if it is something, uh, uh, a reversible cause, uh, and patients are younger, uh, not much of comorbidities, you know, one can wait uh, for the next occurrence of atrial fibrillation um, um, and, and see whether they would uh, benefit from uh, rhythm control management. And what are the options for chemical cardioversion? What uh, drugs might you use for that? Um, most of the times, um, you know, uh, it's uh, rapidly acting antidemic drugs. You know, um, uh, some of the drugs are not available universally. Um, uh, we don't have uh, some of the drugs which are uh, um, um, uh, approved in uh, Europe, for example, uh, uh, venacartan in, uh, in the US. Um, but one can try uh, uh, flaconide, one C agent, uh, uh, high dose, um, or propafenone, or uh, some other antidepressant agents like amiodarone. Um, one can also try abutilide, which is a, uh, a, a, a sodium channel blocking drug. Um, uh, the, the issue is uh, when they have uh, left ventricular dysfunction as such, or some other major comorbidities like heart failure, uh, these, particular, these drugs uh, universally, uh, without exception, can cause more toxicities and more adverse reactions. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Um, let's move on to pitfalls in management now. What are the common pitfalls in management that you might see? To me, I think the, the, the major uh, thing is that even with the advancements and progresses that we have made in pharmacotherapy and technology of catheter ablations, we have not been able to claim, quote-unquote, cure of atrial fibrillation whether new onset or chronic, which we shouldn't use the term chronic, but uh, long-standing. Um, and then there's a very high uh, uh, recurrence rate of atrial fibrillation in, in patients with multiple comorbidities, even at best hands with catheter ablations. So uh, 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 as I alluded before, we are subjecting patients to uh, all these procedures and drugs and anticoagulation. Um, they may have a problem of their own. Um, 
including uh, risk to bleeding and intracranial hemorrhage and with anticoagulants and, 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 and things like that. Okay, thank you. Um, we've gone through a lot of questions. Have we missed anything? What other questions do you commonly get asked about new onset atrial fibrillation? Well, among some common question that I asked uh, um, is, uh, uh, of course, the risk of stroke. Am I going to get stroke? But in addition to you know, uh, most patients will ask whether atrial fibrillation is genetic or hereditary. Would my children develop atrial fibrillation? Some patients also wonder whether the episodes of atrial fibrillation uh, that they suffered was actually heart attack. Uh, do they have blockages in the arteries? And it's also very difficult to go through the risk profile with them, whether obesity, sleep apnea, and their association with atrial fibrillation. And then sometimes they ask, you know, what is that to do with my weight or what is my other thing to do with atrial fibrillation? Uh, the other question that I get asked a lot is uh, about the role of lifestyle modification, behavioral modification, how much alcohol I'm allowed to drink, when, what kind, um, um, and, and uh, CPAP and the uh, electronic cigarettes and so on and so forth. I think on a larger scale, what have we missed? Uh, I would say we have uh, not made enough stride in, in, in certain areas, meaning uh, biomarkers-based scoring system uh, in predicting atrial fibrillation onset or occurrence, uh, or also biomarker-based scoring system uh, to risk to death, stroke, heart failure, and so on and so forth. They are available, but, but they, we haven't made any fine-tuning and, and, and uh, apply uh, on a widely basis uh, in clinical practice. Okay, thank you. And just to try and get some answers to, to those many questions, um, and taking them in reverse order, um, alcohol, what advice do you give about alcohol? I would say alcohol is a direct toxic uh, to the cells of uh, heart, and any excessive amount of alcohol is uh, not good for heart, especially from uh, uh, atrial fibrillation point of view with a binge drinking over the weekend on Monday morning, they get atrial fibrillation. So I would, uh, I would advise them to avoid binge drinking. And, and what about um, smoking? I'm guessing you'd tell them to stop smoking. Yes, of course I do advise them to stop smoking. We don't have a large studies about the uh, smoking in general. Cigarette smoking is not good um, uh, from many perspective, but you know, what I get asked is the electronic uh, e-cigarettes, you know, and, and that's a very difficult and, uh, question to, uh, to answer. We don't have large term uh, uh, or major studies. Uh, there's one study which says that, you know, one particular e-study is, uh, 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 is not associated with fibrillation, but I don't think we can apply that to general population. And is, is, is it familial? Atrial fibrillation, is there increased risk? Of Some form of uh, atrial fibrillation have genetic basis. Um, you know, those um, with uh, some form of heart blocks and some form of cardiomyopathy. Um, but by and large, atrial fibrillation is part and parcel of the other thing, uh, you know, whether heart failure or coronary disease, 
files or the problems that one may have. Sure, yes. And, and I'm guessing the risk of stroke relates to other comorbidities that the patient may have as well as atrial fibrillation. That is correct. So I think that is the basis of developing the uh, charge pass score, the uh, comorbidities um, um, which listed in that acronym, uh, you know, the you know, charge batch, you know, heart failure, age, and all the rest. Um, but um, uh, risk of stroke is also dependent directly on the atrial fibrillation burden. More data is coming out on that. So, you know, if you maintain normal rhythm, sinus rhythm, the risk is lower. Okay. Thank you very much, Bharat. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful. And we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.